Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. I'm here with Alan and Josie, and we're going to talk about trauma, PTSD, and emotional sobriety. How's it going today, guys? Good. I qualify. Earn my seat. <laughs> yeah, right on, Joe. So have I. You know, it's so funny when it comes to, to facing trauma and stuff like that. I would have told you when you first met me that I don't think I had any trauma in my life. Oh, how wrong you can be. How wrong I could be. I can be. And I was so wrong, man. I just starting with childhood and losing my father, you know, in the way I did dying from cancer. That was a terribly traumatic experience. How it was dealt with in my family was traumatic. Going to combat at 18 years old and, you know, experiencing what I experienced in combat was traumatic. Being sexually molested when I was a kid was traumatic. None of that stuff I could even begin to address until I was about 20 years sober, Joe. You know, we've all done a step four and step five, right? I went to adult children of alcoholics. It really looks into family of origin stuff. And uh, and, yeah. and did I did good work. It was all the Claudia Black stuff and, uh, it, you know, Ernie Larson, of course, and, you know, um, John Bradshaw and all of that stuff was super helpful. I come out of the pandemic and I find in intimate relationships, I don't recognize it as PTSD, but all the symptoms I have avoidance, dissociation, like I'm just not showing up when it matters the most. I'm just sort of spacing out amnesia, right? Don't remember important things that were said to me that, you know, a person who loves someone would remember. And I thought, well, maybe this has to do with some of my uh, adult trauma. And uh, I'm actually in therapy, sort of looking at some of this sort of stuff. And when you look at the symptoms, they are the original bad boys of PTSD that sort of come from that family of origin stuff. Although things like the pandemic, for instance, when we're isolated, when there's an existential threat, we all had a collective trauma. And I think people who, like me maybe, uh, might have, it might have sort of, some of those things that were dormant sort of came to the surface for me. So I'm just a traveler uh, on the uh, on the bus with the rest of the listeners today, I'm not, uh, not no no sage like advice coming uh, coming from this microphone. Well, how do I tell if I've had trauma or PTSD? Like, how does one qualify that? Wow, that's an interesting question. It's it stumped me for a minute because it you know there are a certain set of symptoms that if you go to the diagnostic and statistical manual that'll say that if you have these symptoms that and you have this kind of an experience. One of the problems with using the Diagnostic Statistical Manual is they limit post-traumatic stress to a situation where you were exposed to, let's say, someone being killed, murdered, some kind of violence, some kind of a horrendous experience that threatened your life in some deep, deep way. You know, or so that kind of thing, either you witnessed it or you experienced it firsthand. But we found that that definition to be too narrow. You know, a lot of people suffer from post-traumatic stress if they're growing up and they're being abused in their household. And they've got a parent that's just 
violently angry, even if that person hadn't expressed any violence directly to the child. But if let's say that they did to an older brother or to or uh, neglect or neglect would also fall into that. So so today, practically, we call we call any experience that either threatens your sense of security or your self-acceptance. So let me say that again. It's any experience that threatens your sense of security or a sense of emotional or physical security, which go hand in hand, obviously, or your self-acceptance, right? That your sense of self as a person, any experience that threatens that, we would consider to be traumatic. You know, when I when you broke that down just now, I immediately thought of uh, being like, between the ages of five and 11 on the schoolyard with bullies. Like mm -hmm. that was the, the most painful time, I think for me, um, mm -hmm. there's like a host of experience I had with, uh, with individuals back then. No fun. I did not have any fun back then. No, no, none of us had fun that were bullied. I mean, that's not about fun. It's about being abused. It's about being, uh, having our self-esteem damaged, having an injury to our sense of self. See, these are the things that we're talking about. And like you said, Joe, it's it's amazing how I, I love the the metaphor that Ernie Larson uses to describe this. He says trauma is like where you're in an accident and your bones get shattered. And even though they grow back together, there may be a few bone fragments just laying loose in your body. Mm -hmm. He says sometimes in a year, sometimes two years, sometimes it takes 10, 20, 30 years for those bone fragments to work themselves to the surface. Yeah. And he says when they do and they break through your skin, it hurts like hell. Yeah. And that's what we see. I mean, there's many of us that have experienced, you know, incredible pain and suffering from unresolved trauma in our recovery. And unfortunately, a lot of people go out and relapse at that point, Joe. Yeah. They don't, they don't turn to the program. They don't. And, and sometimes the program's not enough. In my opinion, it wasn't enough for me and it hasn't been enough for me. I need outside help. I need this outside help in terms of going to therapy, taking workshops, doing a lot of reading, reaching out to a lot of close, close friends, which some of which are in the program, some aren't. And, and, you know, more recently, I've just started on a very low dose of an antidepressant to help me get through this period of time that I'm, I'm struggling with. So, you know, those are the resources that are available for us. And a lot of people hit these things and they say, well, what, why isn't my program enough to handle this? And they start to question their programs. Joe, you've seen that, haven't you? Yeah, well, that's right. Like, whenever we put on the... Uh... Side story. <laughs> Whenever we put on the meeting at the detox at the Canadian Center for Addiction and Mental Health. So, and I don't know about you, but whenever you hear that door unlock and then you go in and it locks behind you, my, I'm never going to get out of here. They're going to realize who I really am. <laughs> Keep you locked up, right, Joe? Yeah, exactly. But when, whenever we go in there, um, you know, it's just a, a few of us putting on a 12-step meeting. And I say, okay, uh, who's who's newest here? Great, you're sharing. You've got something they want. N nobody that we're talking to 
wants to come to recovery and sign up for the 20 year plan or the 40 year plan, right? But someone with uh, eight months, someone with like, we're all going to share, but, but in terms of telling what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, the newer, the better, right? And then we'll, we'll jump into help because it's got to be something you can identify with. And then once you're sober, there's this idea that it's behind you, but all it is, is, um, you know, a, a ticket to play the game of life, right? No extra shields, no get out of jail free cards, just, you know, I, I'm a, a bozo on the bus, so to speak, right? And and the analogy of, um, you know, long-term sobriety, uh, yes, uh, there are statistical numbers that once you've achieved five years of continuous sobriety, you have a much lower likelihood of ever relapsing. But it's like if I'm driving from Toronto to Los Angeles, it's a long drive. And when I hit uh, the California border, I'm almost there. I've been on the journey a long time but I'm still the same distance from the ditch that I was when I left, right? You know, I still have to be uh, diligent. I still have to be mindful. I still have to mind my recovery, just like I still have to mind my car, even though I'm almost at my destination. And sobriety's like that. That's a great, that's a great analogy, man. You're right on. We do. And that's where, you know, I, I was doing a, a workshop for OA with Herb Kagan yesterday. They did a one-day retreat and very successful. And it was all on emotional sobriety. And so Herb came in and talked about steps 10, 11, and 12. And I introduced them to Bill's letter and to the concepts of emotional sobriety. And somebody got on at the end and she says, well, listen, I must disagree that you're talking about people being wantless and needless. And it was such a misrepresentation of everything I said, because if you know my my stance on emotional sobriety, it's not about being needless and wantless, it's about learning how to deal with our needs and our wants and how to deal with it in a way that doesn't alienate us from other people, that keeps us connected and gives us a chance of either getting our needs met and if not, then grieving over the disappointment, right? That's my belief about it. So it was complete mischaracterization. And then they said the next thing, well, you're saying that nobody's victimized, and that what about people that have post-traumatic stress and stuff and how their feelings happen? And you're right. If if we are the victims, and I believe people can be victims of abuse, can be victims of crimes, victims of being raped or molested. I mean, I was. I'll, I'll put myself in that category. But what emotional sobriety is about, it's about instead of being claimed by that experience, it's claiming that experience. It's taking that experience and being able to now digest it, process it, and take what you can to grow from it, and then releasing the rest, letting go of the other stuff, right? That this shouldn't have happened, for example, or whatever other ideas you have that keep you stuck in that position of being claimed by the experience, And see, that's what I hope people that are listening to this show on trauma understand. We are not denying in any way that terrible things can happen to people. They do all the time. Look what just happened in Israel. 
I mean, how many people are traumatized by this? And on both sides of the border, I'm not saying it's yeah. one street. Now the other side is being traumatized too. There's a lot of innocent victims caught in this craziness that's going on. So, you know, talk about trauma right now. We just saw that. And look, I, I couldn't look at some of the images that they wanted to show on TV. Being a combat vet, I, I did not want to expose myself to that, Joe. Right. I, I just did not. I, I know the horrors of war. I know, you know, what can take place, you know, when somebody is is being beat or tortured. And, and you know, I remember one experience that I was on Hill 55. And this is a very upsetting experience. And the VC were very active in the area. And there was a a group of, of Viet Cong that would capture U.S soldiers and they would torture them just outside of the perimeter of our base mm -hmm. we could hear them but we couldn't locate them because as soon as we send a squad out to rescue the person they would relocate or go into tunnels or whatever they did but they would keep up the sounds of this person being tortured for nights in a row joe yeah. talk about psychological warfare i mean my goodness man it was horrible horrible listen to the guy scream bloody murder in terms of just imagining what was being done to this person so that's the kind of stuff man that we get exposed to in life and that that is traumatic that was you know i was 18 years old I, i'm not so sure i was an adult yet i was, was on my way to becoming an adult but at 18 yeah. i was far from being an adult but but you're you know we want to say that that the, the the i guess the the important thing here is that no matter what has happened to you, there's a way of getting hold of the experience that you went through, no matter how horrendous and terrible it was, and being able to start to process it, deal with it, re-experience it. I, I, used, I heard someone say we have to re-solve it. Instead of resolve it, re-solve what happened. Isn't that a nice mm -hmm. way to bring mm -hmm. that up? Mm -hmm. Nice. We resolve the dilemma that we were in in that the traumatic experience, and good therapy can help you do that. I mean, I've had some really, you know, um, I'll, I'll give an example of it if it's if it's appropriate in a second. But but I like that idea that it's about us claiming our experience and not being claimed by it. That's the idea I want people to keep in mind. How have no, you been please. able to convince people of that? Um, because the deep to depersonalize um, something so wounding that somebody does to us, um, that I mean, that's one of the tallest orders, I feel like. I understand why people struggle with, um, you know, wrestling with the magnitude, I think, of some of the things that have happened to them. And it's not that I, th I don't think that, like, it's simpler, or it's easier necessarily to be claimed rather than to claim. But like, where have you had the most luck in kind of getting over that hill with some people in terms of like resolving those issues? You want to say something about that, Joe, or do you want me to? Well, I was just while you were talking, I was reflecting on the asterisk to no one is coming, but there is help. It's just they're not going to knock on our door. Right. You know, uh, but we we uh, don't uh, have to do it alone. You know, we, we have to realize no one's coming. We've got to paddle our own canoe, but um, not we don't have to make it up, reinvent the wheel ourselves. 
and the and you talked about letting go and i was listening to an interview with dr rick hansen and he was talking about meditation uh, like trauma-informed meditation meditation for people who are informed and he talked about this mantra that that i've been using and it's let it be let it go let it in because until we accept life on life's terms right a, a lot of my problem in trauma is it comes up when i'm not accepting life as it is you know i want a, a relationship to be a certain way i want a, a you know something to be something it's not and and i'm I'm completely blocked. I, I, I'm not even at stage one, letting it be. And then when you can let it go, you know, the blockage is out and something's coming back in. The The great thing about love is it, like, if you feel lonely, just call somebody, right? Like whether we're loving or being loved, you know, I think those endorphins and uh not a doctor i don't understand these words i've memorized <laughs> you know uh get triggered whether we're the one giving or we're the one uh receiving and that's why the whole peer-to-peer -peer, one person with substance use disorder talking to another person with substance use disorder works because it helps but the person talking and the person listening i think this might tie into what some of what we're talking about that like Right now I'm working with, I'm, not, I'm using that term loosely, I'm working with two people that are in the throes of different kinds of addiction. They have not figured out yet how to claim their experiences. They are still very much uh, in the dark. I feel like in being with them through this and in making myself available, it's kind of like those those blooms that only happen like once, uh, once uh, every 10 years or something like that. Like I keep hoping that one day there will be some kind of alignment and they will be able to step forward and kind of begin this process of getting well. But it's been a while. Uh, I, I'm waiting for those blooms. And I think I'm kind of like, I've, I've made peace with maybe not being able to see them, but hoping for the best. And, um, you know, it can take, it can take a while, I think, for people to come through these types of things. Yeah. Well, let me go back to your question about how do we, how do we help people resolve the trauma and deal with what wasn't dealt with? I can give you an example from the work that I've been doing, and I've done this kind of work with a lot of different clients I have. So, you know, in, in experiential psychotherapy, what we do, what we really believe is that we have to experience the, the event all over again, and this time show up in the event in a different way. And see, that's where the corrective emotional experience comes in. So I'll give you an example from my work. Um, so when I was 17 years old, I was sexually molested by a man that had picked me up when I was drunk in Washington, D.C. I was on Liberty and I was trying to meet my buddies at the Air and Space Museum. I got lost. And I mean, when I would say I was drunk, I could hardly walk kind of drunk. And this guy... I was thumbing a ride. He picked me up. He saw that I was vulnerable. I was in his car. He jumped on the turnpike going 50 miles an hour and started groping me and grabbed my groin. 
and and I started to get aroused, you know, and eventually I ejaculated and it I was crazed. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to hit him, but I was afraid of causing an accident. I wanted to jump out of the car, but we were going 50 miles an hour. It messed me up big time. It crazed all kinds of questions in my head. I was violated. And, and when I was nine, something happened to me where I was violated sexually again, you know, before. So it brought back all that stuff. So I was messed up. I didn't talk about that for 35, 40 years. I mean, recently you guys are now the listeners are going to hear this, but I haven't been public about this at all in my life. And so I went to this somatic trained trauma therapist that mm-hmm. I'm going to be doing this workshop with here coming up in December. And after doing a bunch of exercises leading up to that, where I felt my my agency to be able to to stop a person, back them off or bring them close and have that kind of control. You know, it was funny. She stood around me and she said, how do you feel when I stand here? And when she was on my right side, I was safe. As soon as she moved to the left side where the guy molested me from, my body felt the trauma. Mm -hmm. I wanted to run out of the frigging room. So then she said, well, look, we could go with me on the safe side, but that's not going to help you. Are you willing to be uncomfortable with me standing here? I said, okay, of course I am. I want to, I want to, I want to claim my experience. I didn't say that, but I, I want to get through this. I want to work through it. So she says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to reach around. I'm going to grab your groin. And what I want you to do is grab my hand, stop me, push my hand away and say, no. I mean, so picture that she's reaching over with her right hand to grab me. I'm grabbing her at the wrist. Now, the first time I grabbed her and I pushed her hand away gently, she says, you pushed me away so gently. I said, I don't want to hurt you. She goes, you're worrying about me. And <laughs> instead of dealing with what you, of course I am, right? That's my problem, right? That's one of my problems. So she says, knock it off. She says, this is about you getting yourself back. Throw my hand away. I'll take care of myself. You know, don't, you don't need to worry about me. So she comes over to grab me and I take her hand and I throw it away. I say, no, we did that for almost 30 minutes. At the end of it, I'm screaming, no, you don't have a right to touch me. Leave me alone. You know, who the hell do you think you are? I was ventilating tears, snots coming through out of my nose. I'm screaming. This is what I wanted to do in the car that I didn't do. I was frozen with fear. So at the end of that, I felt empowered. I recovered what I had lost in that moment. I had lost my sense of agency, my sense of being able to act on my own behalf. And at that moment, with the help of of Melissa, I mean, she was a godsend because a licensed therapist couldn't grab your crotch. I mean, if they did, they're going to lose their license, right? She's just a trauma trauma therapist and certified. So she was able to push boundaries that I wouldn't have been able to experience in regular psychotherapy. And today I am forever grateful. I could talk about this without crying about it. I mean, that's how much, not saying that the work is over with that. It's that was a very big, big, important step in to claim my experience, but it's going to take more and more integration of that. So back to what we're saying is the first thing we need to do is to find someone like you said, Joe, 
that we can trust and really open this up and start to explore it because we change when we own what we're experiencing, not when we try to avoid it or be someone we're not. That will never change this stuff. You can't sweep it under the rug. You know, it's always going to be there. It's going to inform your life, whether you're you're dealing with it consciously or unconsciously. And I'd rather people take this stuff when they're ready to start to deal with it consciously. Now, how do you know when you're ready? Well, if you're in pain, <laughs> you're ready. That's your body's way of saying something needs to be resolved here. Something needs to be taken care of. Yeah, I mean, I don't see how it happens unless the pain reaches a sort of critical mass. I mean, because that's the real, that's the biggest incentive, I think, right? To go through something. As so. you know, what triggered all this for me was the betrayal in my marriage. Yeah. Now that all this other betrayal and all these other trauma wounds now have surfaced and given me a chance to deal with that. Man, you've been so voraciously in pursuit of going deeper into your recovery uh, over these past couple of years. It's really something uh, special, I think. Well, you've gotten to witness that up close and personal because some of it I've done publicly here with you, Patrick, to be able to share, you know, with other people. One of the things that I've learned, and I'm sure you would echo this, Joe, is that our pain can be of a lot of value to somebody else and can inspire them to, to do some of the work that they need to do. And I've gotten, I can't tell you how many emails from people and saying, thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for sharing your pain. Yeah. You know, thank you for not hiding behind Dr. Berger, like you got all your shit together. And I don't, I'm getting yeah, it. Uh, leading with our, our weakness. Yep. Right on. Um, I'm moved by the therapist saying when she was uh, sitting on your left, you know, well, I, I can move over to the right and we can avoid that, but, or, or we can deal with it. Right. It's like trigger warning right? You better leave the room. Well, maybe trigger warning. Here's an opportunity to learn to sort of face the demon, to get comfortable with the discomfort. To and But it, it needs guidance and it needs help going about it, uh, you know, a new way, re-solving it, you know, and uh, um, because we don't want to spend our life avoiding Right. Like it'd be I mean, there are people sober 20 years that won't go in a bar, won't buy a bottle of wine or a bottle of booze for a friend. If it's not, hey, could you pick me up? Yeah, they wouldn't do it. Right. And and that's that's a good to have your own boundaries for sure. But, you know, another thing is to, you know, resolve those old trigger problems and learn to. uh you know, walk through the discomfort as opposed to avoid the discomfortable places, discomforting places. Right. Right on, Joe. You know, it's funny. One um, one boundary I'd like to smash through eventually. It's going to sound a little silly, but um, I, uh, when my first couple like high school or not even high school, like grade school dances that I went to, I had a really good time. And then somehow in the midst of everything that happened in my like adolescence, I became incredibly self-conscious and uh, you couldn't get me out onto a dance floor despite me loving dancing and uh, you know, me liking to kind of be around the energy of other people doing it and stuff. And I think like, I know this is a few orders removed from some of the things we've been discussing, but I think to be comfortable enough in my own body where I could get out and, and dance and kind of participate in something like that is some like 
body focused work that I would love to be able to do at some point, you know, just makes me think of it. Still got one slot in that workshop, Patrick. <laughs> ah, I would love to come out. <laughs> we'll see if we can make it happen. Intimate situations will cause tension. I found myself checking out, dissociating. Someone else can see it before I do. And the explanation is it happens in the lizard part of our brain, not the executive functioning part of their brain. So what's going on with you, Joe? Nothing. I'm fine. <laughs> right? Because I'm not even aware it's happening, this sort of dissociative uh, state. And uh, hypervigilance is another characteristic or symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, for sure. And um, avoidance, um, like avoiding uncomfortable situations, is no way to responsibly be a partner in a relationship. I mean, uh, they have to be dealt with when they're at a 2 out of 10 tension, not a 9 out of 10 tension, right? It, it's easier to solve problems that way, right? So, yeah, I just found that, you know, being on my own, I could just sort of, uh, you know, do workarounds on my own issues. But out there dealing with people, especially in an intimate relationship, you know, I'm beside myself in things I thought I had mastery over. I'm like a, a, a bull in a china shop uh, all over again. And, uh, and when I dissociate like that, like I become inarticulate, I, I, I can't defend myself, I can't explain myself, I can't hear. And uh, those are pretty vital roles in being a partner in a, any sort of human relationship, whether it's, you know, person in recovery, person in recovery, or an intimate, you know, uh, you know, life partner type thing. My... Uh... My relationship didn't take. I was uh, doing it for a little over four years. Some of the, what you described, um, especially in terms of there being gaps in terms of like, you know, things that you would have liked to remember about conversations, your arguments you'd had and not being able to remember those things. Kind of my mind being very highly functioning in some contexts, uh, but then in the more intimate context, me not having as, as full of faculties as I would like to have had. We just keep trying, right? You know? Alan mentioned uh, somatic therapy, if that's the right word, because I understand a lot of this stuff from the neck up. Yeah. Right. But, you know, me too. Me too. Yeah. It's below the neck. It's in the heart. It's like it's the whole Joe experience of dealing with these matters. And I, you know, the idea is to like uh, see it own it, purge it, right? But, uh, you know, m maybe I've gotten to an own it stage, but I, I certainly haven't got to a recovered from it stage. Basil van der Koop just recently reminded us in his book, Your Body Keeps Score, mm -hmm. about that trauma is is a somatic experience, first and foremost, you know, it, it's definitely we experience whatever the trauma is at, at that somatic and emotional level and so it makes a lot of sense that somehow we have to deal with it somatically not just intellectually or cognitively and that's the good news i mean even with 9 11 all the people that were traumatized by that horrendous attack um, one of the things they found was that massage therapy 
was mm -hmm. probably one of the more effective ways of dealing with some of the trauma because it was intervening at the body level. Wilhelm Reich, one of Freud's disciples, knew this back in the 1900s, early 1900s, where he saw that the body armors itself against the experience. And so we have this chronic muscular tension that he called armoring to hold back the feelings that we couldn't experience because they would be too overwhelming to us and overwhelming to our psyche. So we armor ourselves, which is the body's way of, of repressing or denying. You know, so you're right that we have to deal with this stuff at all levels, spiritually, emotionally, somatically, cognitively. You know, it takes an integration of all of that in terms of being able to, to work with these things. There's no question. But, you know, Joe, what you were saying about how this shows up in your relationship, the trauma you had. See, one of the things that we realized is that in order to maintain our center, meaning to maintain our existence, mm -hmm. that we will adapt to the situation and cut off certain parts of ourselves that would make it hard to live with. For example, if something I heard was so disturbing, I will lose my ability to hear things. If I yeah. saw something, my vision will be compromised. If I felt something with my heart, then I'm not going to be able to openly feel things again. I'm going to armor myself. So the armoring creates these holes in our existence. That's what you were talking about, is that you'd be in this relationship and there were Joe was like a piece of Swiss cheese. There was parts of him that was there, parts of him that wasn't there. Yeah. And, and, and it's it's a very interesting dynamic. Now, part of recovery is recovering all those lost pieces of ourselves to the trauma. You know, it's like my ability to be vulnerable and be open and let somebody in, you know, was definitely compromised, man. I, I didn't trust anyone i'm starting to trust more now but i didn't feel safe i haven't felt safe most of my life in one of your podcasts you were talking about speaking to uh vets about uh ptsd benefits they would be entitled to and someone said you know alan <laughs> and you know what 70% of my disability benefits benefits from the VA are related to post-traumatic stress. 70% <laughs> of the 90% I got is related to post-traumatic stress. I mean, that's how like clueless I was. I mean, that's yeah. shocking, but thank God that he was there. Yeah. He's become a good friend since then, by the way. Yeah, and and the the, the worst thing about this for me is I tend to isolate and we need to be out there with others, connection. Um, you know, that what I harp on, you know, all mental health or addiction recovery, whether it's an eightfold path, a 12-step method, uh, you know, 12 essential this or eight essential that, there's always connection, hope, identity, meaning, and empowerment. And when I isolate and I don't have connection, you know, I don't have someone I'm working with I trust. I don't have a community of people who have been where I've been. It, you know, good luck with that. It just right. gets worse. Joe, have you found much solidarity in like your recovery community uh, as you go through this? 
experience, you know, the challenges in your relationship? Like, has how's that been working out? Like when you pick up the phone and, you know, are you getting some good uh, nuggets from people? Yeah. Well, when you do speak up, it's amazing how many other people speak up. I mean, it, it uh, likes attract, right? And uh, someone will feel empowered to talk about their own circumstances. Uh, I mean, you know, private things I, I don't necessarily tell the world about, but they're, you know, it's important in my recovery journey to have my running mates and they know everything about me. There's nothing I wouldn't tell them uh, because I think that is critical um, to, you know, having people who are empowered to call me on my bullshit. Uh, you know, like Alan had someone to say, hey, you know, maybe uh, do that self-examination test yourself. Uh, you might qualify, <laughs> uh, you know, to have someone say to me, Joe, you say that like it's a fact. Is it? One thing I'd like to do better to help out my fellows is um, when they come to me about some crisis that they're enduring to not project what I assume is a similar crisis of my own onto their experience. And I think, you know, to maybe just to, to listen far more than I'm speaking. I think that like, you know, because sometimes I'll, I'll go to some, somebody that's a little outside the circle, um, you know, my running mates, like you described and uh, you know, and, and kind of work, try to workshop some stuff, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so much more helpful. I think sometimes to just have somebody who's just really, fully listening to what you're going through. Not everyone recovers by joining an organization, but nobody recovers alone. Well, what else needs to be said, you guys? Is there anything? I mean, I think we've covered such important ground today in this whole thing. I mean, there is hope. I mean, that's the thing we want to leave you you with in that it's there's a lot of tough, painful, and difficult work ahead to deal with these things. But the good news is, is that if in the hands of a right person and the right and the right kind of a healer you know you can make phenomenal progress uh in terms of reclaiming yourself and claiming your experience i'm 37 and uh you guys are a bit older and it actually inspires me um that you guys are kind of deep into your lives but you are still you still have a hunger to really um investigate these things and unpack them. And you know what, like the work is never done. And to me, that's not a like defeatist attitude. That's just, I think the more that we can kind of like, um, accept that, that we're going to be uncovering new layers, you know, through time. And that that is just kind of like, what, what did you call it, Joe? Like it's a ticket to play the game of life. Um, yeah, it's an, uh, uh, admit one card. It's not a get out of jail free card, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, it's especially for like younger men, I think that there is a, there's an assumption. It's very like, you know, very appealing assumption that like, there's some way to just beat this thing and to kind of like carve out your space and to have all the answers. But the thing, you know, life's always changing on you. So it's no way to get ahead of that. Right. Spike the football, win the game, roll the credits done good show and i hope we left people with some vision of what's possible here i like to define recovery as a discovery of, of possibilities and there are many possibilities to be discovered 
-hmm. if you're in a lot of pain over some stuff that have happened to you, either as an adult or as a child. I mean, we get traumatized, like you said, Joe, as adults too. Yeah. Being traumatized is not is restricted to childhood, man. There's plenty of trauma as adults, as I know recently in my own life, right? Plenty of trauma to deal with here. Yeah, there's there's highwaymen on the road of happy destiny. So you gotta be vigilant. Yeah. <laughs> Good way to say it. Well, Joe, listen, I really appreciate you stepping in as frequently as you have, given that Tom's been really, you know, struggling with his recovery and with what's going on with him. And I appreciate you helping us out here, man. I miss Tom. But I'm glad to have you here. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad as well. Me too. And uh, would you mind, Alan, just really quickly plugging your upcoming event in case uh, there are people who aren't aware of it? Well, there's two events coming up. So on the 28th, we're doing a one-day workshop, a symposium, we're calling it, on emotional sobriety. We're going to talk about emotional sobriety on a, a practical basis, you know, in everyday life. Roger Andes is going to talk about emotional sobriety and self-esteem. Uh, Sarah um, Stromberg and myself are going to talk about emotional sobriety and gender issues. It's a topic that we haven't gotten into before. And then I'm going to wrap up the day with talking about emotional sobriety from the perspective of a bunch of masters in psychotherapy. So that information and registration is available at 4D Publishing, and Patrick will have that in the show notes um, to be able to reach that. In December, I am doing a three-day intensive workshop with Melissa, the therapist I was mentioning early, on uh, trauma and um, we are starting on a Thursday night, just kind of meet and greet and kind of get a sense of what people want to do. And then Friday, Saturday and Sunday, there's going to be um, two, three hour sessions every day through the weekend. And it's going to be if you come, I guarantee you're going to walk away with a lot more than you came with. Um, a lot of healing, a lot of perspective, a lot of wisdom. So there's only one slot left in the program. It's already quite it's been, you know, very popular and we already have seven people registered. We're limiting the group to eight or nine. So there's only room for one or two more people. So if you're interested, reach out to me as soon as possible. There was a cooker or floor sweeper job there. I would take it. You got it, Joe. You can just come and sweep the floors. You're welcome to come. Sounds irresistible. <laughs> All right, guys. Until next time. Change your life. Change your myth. Cultivate your narrative with whomever you are.